0: Amen. It's so good to be together and to worship. Absolutely. Thank you so much to our praise team and to so many of our volunteers who are going, who are back with the kids and in the nursery and everywhere. Thankful for them and the way that they serve us every single week. If you have a Bible, hope you do find Genesis chapter 49. Can't believe it. We've been making our way through the book of Genesis and we are to the second to last chapter. This morning i have been working our way verse by verse chapter by chapter section by section through this book And that that should say something in and of itself that we as christians believe that the bible is this important That we would spend months at a time pouring over words and pouring over uh, chapters and pouring over sections of the word of god and have we ever considered to ask ourselves Why do we even believe this book is so important? Why do we believe that the Bible is true? I don't know how that question might land on you. Maybe you are a Christian, and maybe you're ready to give me all of the apologetic reasons, the history, the theology, all of these things that can explain, this is why I know that the Bible is true. Maybe you're a believer, and you're honestly like, hey, I I don't know. And that's okay, right? That's, that's okay. It's, it's about God, God will show us a little this morning of why, in fact, uh, we can trust that it's true. But maybe you're a skeptic and you're waiting for the pastor here to say, well, the Bible is true because I say so. <laughs> and let me say, I'm not going to offer you that reason this morning, but I'm going to offer you through Genesis 49, one of the primary ways that we can see that the Bible is trustworthy and true we can talk at another time about historical questions and all of these things but one of the most fascinating pieces of evidence for the truthfulness of God's word is this fulfilled prophecy is evidence of the inspiration and divine origin of God's word fulfilled prophecy saying something's going to happen And then it happens, exactly as you said it would, hundreds and thousands of years apart from each other. Let me offer you some examples before we even get into our text. Jesus in the Gospels, actually during Holy Week, during Wednesday or Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus actually spoke about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus was saying these words around 30 A.D., And 40 years later, the Romans would come in and destroy the temple. And Jesus said, hey, all of this was going to happen within his generation. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, there's a lot of skeptical so-called Bible scholars that are so impressed with Jesus's accuracy on this prophecy that they say, hey, it must have been written after the event because we know telling the future just doesn't happen. (laughs) And you see why I can call them so-called Bible scholars. They obviously miss the whole point of God knowing the beginning from the end and him able to speak through uh, human agents and through his son to us. But we know the gospels are written before the event. Jesus was speaking long before the event. And we see through the pages of scripture fulfilled prophecy as evidence of the inspiration and divine origin of God's word. And Genesis 49 is another incredible evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Jacob here is on his deathbed. We've been sort of watching the TV show of Jacob's life, and he's taken like three episodes to die, <laughs> right? Right? And he's finally actually going to die today, right? We're finally at that point in this. But beforehand, he is going to speak a prophecy over each of his 12 sons. And particularly, he's going to speak about what's going to happen to the tribes that are going to come through them, the peoples and the tribes of the nation of Israel that are going to come through them in the future. And it's amazing evidence of the truth of God's word and ultimately within it, is a message of hope. So let's look at Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read uh, this whole chapter together, but stick, stick with me. There's some incredible stuff here to mine. Genesis chapter forty-one and 49 and verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foil to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls back. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph, And on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought for the, with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. Then they buried, Eph, where they, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is the word of God. So now we see we're finally at the last scene of Jacob's life. The second to last chapter of the book of Genesis, and the emphasis turns to his sons, particularly what Israel's going to speak over his sons. But before we we look at really the bulk of the passage, I do want us to see that Jacob, through his ups and downs, goes out on the mountaintop. Here's the first thing we see. We see first the faith of Israel. See first the faith of Israel. Israel. In verses 29 to 33, Israel has his sons agree to bury him back home in Canaan. Think of it almost, we we have these here in Katie's family plots, right, where all sorts of people from all sorts of the same family are buried together. There was a big place where Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, all of these people had been buried, and Jacob says, I want to go back there. And notice he says he buried Leah there, even at the end of his life, we're seeing that Leah was in fact the favorite. Right? He he buried her there, and he went to be buried in the field of Machpelah in the family plot of Abraham. This was the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, and to their family. And Jacob was chosen to was choosing to be buried in the place of God's promise instead of in Egypt, where he was, where he could have been buried in the place of prominence. We all know what the Egyptians do to honor their dead, don't we? They build pyramids, right? And Jacob, Joseph was such a powerful man in Egypt that if his father died, they could have brought out everything they wanted. He could have had a pyramid built to honor him, but he chose to be buried in the place of promise in the field of Canaan. See Jacob's faith here even a faith that ultimately lasted until the end. And even though he didn't receive all that was promised him, he had been promised this land in Canaan, and yet he is dying here in Egypt. Yet he continued to trust, even though he had not received what was promised to him. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says this, these all died in faith. He's talking about all of these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament that came before us. All these died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Jacob so believed that God was going to give him this land, he even knew, hey, even if I'm not going to get it till after I die, God said it, I believe it, bury me there. He says, even if God's got to resurrect me from the dead, he's going to give me what he promised. Consider the application to us. Are we willing to, like Jacob, trust the promises of God that have greeted us even from afar and hope even against all odds that when God says it, he will do it and that God's promise and God's ways are better than the ways of the Egypt we may find ourselves in. That God's promise and God's word are better than the false promises that the world offers to us today that it's better to believe that it, is, that, that it is truly better to be where God is rather than to have riches and glory here on earth. The old hymn writer put it this way. He said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. And I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Here's the point. Jacob would rather have been buried in the middle of nowhere trusting God's promise than had preeminence and a giant pyramid built to him in the present. And it's that faith that leads Jacob to bless and speak a prophecy over his sons. I love how verse 28 puts it. Look at this. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Notice it, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. (laughs) Think about that, a blessing suitable to each of them. One based on how they lived and how receptive they were to God's promises and God's grace. But we also see that this was more than just a blessing. Look back at verse 1 where the passage began. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This was more than simply a blessing. This was a prophecy. He's going to tell them, here's what's going to happen to you and to the family and the tribes that will come through you. But we see, at the, we see here within this the faith of Israel. And that's what undergirds the words he speaks to the future tribes of Israel. Then we see that the book of the passage focuses on, second, the prophecy of Israel. We turn from his faith now to basically 27 verses of this passage are nothing but prophecy to all 12 of these sons. And I promise you, we're not going to spend detailed time on every last one of these. Remember, the guy had 12 kids And they had nations come through them. We could be here a long time if we wanted to dive into every aspect of all of these prophecies. But I do want to break them down into three general categories. Have you ever heard of the good, the bad, and the ugly? (laughs) Well, here we get the good, the bad, and the hopeful. And I want to start with the bad news first. Here's first the bad you can see that in your notes in the list of sons that are going to get sort of a bad, bad news from Jacob, their father. Particularly, he starts off with the oldest sons. Look at verse 3. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent and power. He says, Hey, Reuben, as my firstborn, you would have access to the inheritance and to the blessing. But Reuben was not faithful in his role as firstborn. Look what he says next, verse 4 Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. If you've been with us, you recall back in Genesis 35, that's the events that Jacob is recalling where Reuben committed shameful sin with Bilhah, who was one of Jacob's concubines. Now, we saw this when we looked at this. Jacob really shouldn't have had concubines to begin with. But Reuben shouldn't have been messing around with Jacob's concubines also, right? There was sort of wrong to go everywhere. Reuben should have learned from his father's mistakes and not perpetuated the sins of his father. And judging by Jacob's words here, Reuben seemed to remain unrepentant. And because of this, he lost access to everything that could have been his Next in the bad category, we get prophecies to Simeon and Levi, and they get put together. Look at verse 5. Look at this. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here he, he recalls the angry outburst of Simeon and Levi when they slaughtered a whole group of Shechemites in Genesis chapter 34. And like Reuben, they remained unrepentant. They remained unwilling to change, to turn away from their sin and to humble themselves under the grace of God. And by doing so, they forsook the blessings and the inheritance of God. We even see that at the end, Jacob that they will be divided among the tribes of Israel. And this is exactly what happens. You can read uh, when you get some time about the tribe of Levi, that interestingly enough, the priests are going to come through and the book of Leviticus and other places are going to tell you that the Levite priests have no possession of the land at all. They don't get any possession in the land of promise. And you can mark this down at Joshua chapter 19 and read the first few verses there that tells us that the tribe of Simeon is actually going to lose any unique possession in the land they're just going to get absorbed by Judah. They're not going to have any more unique sort of identity there. And so here's the warning. Here's the warning. A lack of repentance will take away God's good gifts from you. <laughs> Being unwilling to admit you're wrong and to be unwilling to, to walk away from your sin will never will, will cause you to not walk in God's plan for your life. It will leave you cursed rather than blessed. If you have to ask yourself, "Do I repent of this or do I not?" let me tell you, repentance is always the answer. <laughs> Repentance is always God's will for your life when you have sinned and when you have wronged another. And repentance isn't simply this giving lip service to something done wrong, but it's a a change of course, a turning away, a, a real transformation or a real, at least, effort toward change. And finally, we see under the bad collection a sort of group of other of the brothers, don't we? And these statements can really be read as a mixture of good and bad, and Frankly, these are brothers that really didn't get much of the spotlight throughout the book of Genesis. We see in verse 14 that the tribe of Issachar, he says, is going to be like a strong donkey and that they're going to be subjected to forced labor. It's a little unclear what he might be talking about here, but you can go read in the book of Chronicles that the offspring of Issachar became mighty warriors. And so that means not only were they mighty warriors and that they got work done, but they probably got captured a lot, <laughs> which is why well, he says that not only are they going to be strong donkeys, but they're probably going to be forced into, uh, into servitude from time to time. Verse 16 and 17, we see Dan compared to a snake, which actually is kind of positive and negative. Dan's name means judge. And so we see that Dan is going to be a judge, and it's interesting that Samson in the book of Judges comes from this tribe. And if you ever read the book of Samson in light of this prophecy, you kind of begin to see some real interesting, uh, real interesting elements that sort of begin to overlap there. Verse 19 says the tribe of Gad will often be subjected to war. In fact, it says that raiders will raid Gad. And if you were to read that in the original Hebrew, the word Gad and the word raider actually sound very similar. So he has this kind of wordplay going on saying that Dan will also be warriors. And then down to verse 27, we see that the tribe of Benjamin, beloved Benjamin, the youngest, is going to be a ravenous wolf, which is a striking picture. He's going to be a, a, a fierce devourer. In fact, let me give you some examples of where this is fulfilled. You can go read about this. This is one of my favorite stories in, in the Bible, the, in the book of Judges. There's this judge named Ehud, and I believe it's Judges chapter 3. He's a Benjaminite, and he goes face-to-face with this rather large king of Moab, if you get what I'm saying. He is very physically very large and we read that in this face-off, Ehud sticks his sword right into this massive man's belly to kill him, and that's how he delivers Israel. I love the Bible. I, I just think that's super cool. I really think that's super cool. And, and frankly, here we see a Benjaminite being a fierce warrior. In fact, there's two other antagonists in the Bible that are Benjaminites. One of them you might know of as King Saul. He was from Uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and he really is sort of a good and a bad figure, depending on when you read about him in his life, right? That ravenous wolf thing can be good if it's on the side of good, and bad when it's on the side of bad. But then there's also a man named, a man in the New Testament named Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, who was from the tribe of Of Benjamin. And recall again, both of these men had this wolf like characteristics at different points in their life. And so we see Jacob speaking prophecies over these tribes that begin to become fulfilled, at least in individuals and in the general history of the tribe. And we see that under the bad category, it's at least mixed for these particular brothers. Let's consider next the good. Move from the bad news. Let's see some good out of this. Verse 13, we're told that the tribe of Zebulun is going to be in the midst of a trade route. They're, they're going to be in a prosperous area, and you can read about that, but that's actually where they end up. And we see in verse twenty-one or 20 and 21 that Asher and Naphtali are going to be prosperous as well. But notice that the bulk of good is said to Joseph. In fact, most of the brothers get one verse. Joseph gets five. He gets more blessing than any of the other brothers. Look at verse 22. Look what he starts with. Joseph is a faithful bow, a faithful bow by the spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Before we keep going, we see this picture of archers shooting at him and Joseph remaining unmoved. And I think this is a picture of what the brothers did to him earlier in the book of Genesis. They attacked him, but ultimately Joseph stood firm in his faith, and we saw him exalted later in the book. Look what, look what happens next by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Who wouldn't want that prayed over them from their father? writes it says that the blessings of joseph are going to be greater than jacob's fathers than abraham and isaac and that the one who was set apart from the beginning even to suffer would ultimately inherit a unique blessing from god i want you to notice also the various titles and names of god used here the mighty one of jacob The shepherd, the stone of Israel, the the Almighty, this God is blessing Joseph and his offspring. The one the other brothers rejected and even the world rejected would be blessed by God because of his faith. He is fruitful and God will continue to make him fruitful. We move from the bad to the good, finally to the hopeful. To the hopeful right In the middle of the prophecy, there's a surprise. Did you notice it? You saw Judah there gets five verses like Joseph does, but we see another surprise. We begin to see that his blessing gets more attention on the promise than Joseph's does. That that this whole time we've been paying attention to Joseph when really Judah is the main character. We've been paying all this attention to Joseph, but it says Judah is going to be the inheritor of the promises. The story of Joseph was really a story about Judah, that Judah will receive the promised king. Here's your third and final point. We see the promise of Israel. We've seen his faith. We've seen his prophecy. And within this prophecy is a hopeful promise for us. Verse 8. Look at this. "'Judah, your brothers shall praise you. "'Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. "'Your father's son shall bow down before you. "'Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. "'My son, you've gone up. "'He stooped down. "'He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. "'Who dares rouse him?' whiter than milk. We see that the whole time, Joseph has appeared to be the main character, but Judah would be the one who would receive the promise that he is going to get, that the one who we thought was just the best supporting actor was really the main character all along. And that should blow our mind because remember Judah blew it as well, didn't he? In fact, Judah was often the the lead brother in betraying Joseph. But we see throughout this story, and we've seen this together throughout looking at the end of Genesis together, that he was repentant. He might have been the first to sell out his brother, but he repented and inherited the promises. And we really see three parts, and I want to look at this together, three parts of this promise that we see in these verses. We see first that Judah is promised an offspring who will be like Judah joseph judah's promised an offspring who'll be like joseph once you look at verse 8 again look at this judah your brothers shall praise you your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's sons shall bow down before you where's that last phrase where have we heard that before Didn't God come to Joseph in a dream and say, hey, Joseph, Genesis chapter 37, your brothers are going to bow down before you. And now Judah's told that through him is going to come one who's going to be like Joseph. Judah, his name means praise. He's going to receive praise for the one coming through him. And the one who's going to come through him would be like Joseph. His brothers would bow down to him. In other words, here's here's what we're told. We're told that in order to recognize the promised son of Judah, you need to look for someone like Joseph. That's why Joseph has gotten so much of the attention. Judah's going to inherit the promise, but we're told Judah, your promised son, the one who's going to bring all this about, he's going to look like Joseph. Joseph, he's going to be sold, betrayed, descend even to the place of death, but he will ascend to a throne and be bowed down to by those who betrayed him. Friends, who is that about? That's about Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is the true and better Joseph, and that tells us that that's ultimately who this story is about that the promises that have gone through this book all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all the promises made back to Adam in the garden and through all of these generations are going to come through Judah, and the person is going to look at least somewhat like Joseph. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to descend. But in the end, people are going to bow down to him, and he will ascend to a throne. The second part of this promise We see second, Judah is promised an offspring who will be a king. He's going to be like Joseph, but he's also going to be a king. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from. From Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience. Of the people we can see the language of kingship here We all know that when you're talking about a lion you're talking about the king of the animal kingdom And we see this language of a scepter Passing down through him and that all peoples all nations will come and give tribute and worship to this king Friends, jesus is far more than simply the king of israel. He's the king over everybody All have all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and the Apostle John, as he's locked away on the island of Patmos, really begins to sees a vision that shows us really the fulfillment of this prophecy. So I want you to hold your place, Genesis 49, and you can look all the way in the book of Revelation. So all the way to the end, you'll begin to see it's the, the Bible has all these threads together because through all the human authors that wrote it down, there's really one divine author, right, that's working through all of them. And here's what we see Revelation chapter 5, and we see this vision John has, and he sees this vision of a scroll, and the scroll is sort of symbolic for who's got control over the universe. Think of it, to hold the scroll would have been to hold the steering wheel of the world. And he says, "Who have you, have you ever thought to this, who is in control of everything that's happening And John sees that there's nobody who's able to take hold of the scroll. And so that's what we drop into. Revelation chapter 5. Look at this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found to open the scroll and to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is a king who reigns in heaven and who rules over all things. And if you were to keep reading the book of Revelation, you'd see that Jesus then begins to open these various seals and all of creation begins to do what he says. (laughs) There is not one atom or molecule that Jesus does not own, does not rule over as the good and kind king. And that should give us comfort today that Jesus, the one who came to earth and has nail-pierced hands, rules the world. And that should give us peace. Russia doesn't rule the world. The U.S. government, praise God, doesn't rule the world. There's one above them. And friends, he loves you and has given himself for you. And I hope that would bring comfort to you that the Lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root, the root of David, rules over all, and he's worthy for us to bring our tribute and our worship to. And we see finally that the offspring of Judah will reverse the curse. Will reverse the curse. Remember the whole problem of the book of Genesis or all of these curses that come out of Genesis chapter 3. There's all these curses. When the man and woman sinned against God, the creation's cursed. It makes our work hard. The family's cursed. There's going to be conflict in the family. I'm sure none of us have ever experienced familiar or marital conflict, Taboo. He says that goes back to, to Adam and Eve in the garden. Man and woman are going to be cursed in various ways. But from Genesis chapter 3, 15, on, God has this unfolding promise to reverse the curse and to create a new heavens and a new earth. Think of it as Eden 2.0. Better. It's not simply like, you know, the iPhone uh, 11. That's really just like the iPhone 10, only slightly different. No, 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 no. He's going to recreate it all and he's going to have Eden, but far better and incorruptible. And we sing that this king is going to bring this about. Let me have you look at verse 11 and 12. Look at this bringing his foil to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, this might seem a little weird to us because he's put it in, in terms that they would have understood. The people of his time in ancient Israel would have understood this, but he's painting this king as the source of all true prosperity and blessing. He has these agricultural terms or the land that has been cursed, that's been this constant issue through the book of Genesis. He says, hey, he's going to bring spoils and he's going to be able to tie his donkey to the choicest vine. He says, this person's going to have so." Prosperity. He's not simply going to have a nice dishwasher. He's going to be able to wash his clothes and wine. How many of y'all doing that, right? I don't know how he washes his whites, but that's a different—that's a different story, right? And the statement about his eyes and his teeth are, are to show that he has access to the best of the best. That he's the source of the blessing that reverses the curse. He's the way to freedom from a world in bondage to sin and brokenness. He's the fountainhead of blessing and a creation that's cursed. Jesus is the savior of the world. And on this Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week, where Christians around the world remember the crescendo of our Savior's ministry, we must be reminded that our hope is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. That this is all about Jesus. He's the one able to reverse the curse and bring us back to an Edenic garden state with God. That through his perfect life, he is able to forgive broken, sinful people like Judah and like you. But we must respond in repentance and faith. We must not be like Reuben and Simeon and Levi who just cling to our own self-righteousness and our own rightness about what happened, but rather we're to lay it down as Judah did. And God will forgive you and transform you. Through his death on the cross, he takes our curse upon himself so that your heavenly father has no more curses to give you if you're found in Jesus And on the third day, he rose again from the dead to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave so that, friends, through a response of faith, you can know your Savior, love your Savior, serve him, and experience forgiveness, everlasting life, and be a part of the restoration project that God has been doing since back in the beginning. And you can trust his word because he said it before it happened. Friends, I, I'm normally pretty prone to trust folks who even get it right, even if they can predict a couple years from now. Friends, this is prophecy from thousands of years ago, and they got it right. Jacob prophesies over his sons what's going to happen hundreds and thousands of years before it happens. And even in Genesis, notice that we get mention here of this, of this promised son of Judah, that he's got a donkey. Which might not sound like that big of a deal, but if you, read the, if you remember what we read coming into the service, what does this Savior ride into Jerusalem on? A donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 picks that up, and then Jesus does this in those chapters, Mark chapter 11, Matthew chapter 21, in the Gospels. And we can trust Jesus because he told us what would happen. He would die on the cross. And he told us that he wouldn't stay dead, but that he'd rise from the dead. And friends, he's been to the grave and back. That's why I'm able to trust him about where, about him being the way to get there. We all know we trust folks that have been to the city we're visiting ahead of our own intuition. And friends, he's been to the city of God and back and he reigns there now. And so I'm going to trust that he knows where to find life and truth and goodness in a world that seems so scattered. Let me close with this. Let me encourage you today to place your trust in Jesus and in God's word. It has proven trustworthy in so many ways, but particularly in this realm of fulfilled prophecy, telling us what will happen before it ever happens. Friends, that doesn't mean simply giving a nod to it. That means giving our life toward knowing it, studying it, and making sure others hear about the good news of this Savior. Jesus told a parable of a man who built his house on a rock and a man who built his house upon sand. And he reminds us that the man who built his house on the sand when the rains and the floods came, his house washed away. But the man who built his house on the solid rock of Jesus and on his word stood firm in the day of trouble. He didn't say that the waves and the rains wouldn't come. But he said that the foundation was strong to stand on the other side. The invitation is to build the foundation of your life, not on the sifting sands of political commentary or news media or even in our day folks who often claim to know what they're talking about. But friends, to build the foundation of your life upon Jesus and his words. And when the rains come, that foundation will stand So, today I want you to commit yourself to trust, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, in the Savior who lives forever and is able to save today. Maybe today you've realized that you haven't really placed your life on that foundation. You can pray right where you are, you can cry out to God, and and in your own words, say, Admit that you're a sinner, confess that you believe in Jesus Christ. As your, as, as your Savior and your Lord and confess that you're following him by faith all the days of your life. Others of us can, can, can recommit our life by just taking this Holy Week to study his word, to get into the Gospels, to start at Matthew, the end of Matthew, or, or toward the end of John, and just read those last weeks of Jesus' life. Because the word is true, it's trustworthy, and it's worthy to build your life upon. Let's stand and let's pray. Together. Father God, we know that this is not some ordinary book. Sure, it, me, men and me, people wrote it, but the Holy Spirit inspired them and told them what to say. It contains supernatural things like fulfilled. Prophecy, things happening before they happen, telling us what will happen before it happens. And we confess that your word and your truth is worth giving everything for. That in a world full of falsehood, it is good to have a solid rock of truth on which to build our life and upon which to trust for our salvation. Lord, I want to pray right now for those that are within the sound of my voice, that, Lord, you would, by your Spirit, draw them to yourself, have them to know you and love you, who is the point, who is the Word himself. God made flesh, Jesus Christ. And they would trust in, in your death, burial, and resurrection to save them from their sins. Lord, I pray for us as your people that we would come to know And love your word to hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against you and to walk in obedience to you. I ask that you'd be honored in our worship and in the rest of our time together. we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On Palm Sunday, they would cry, Hosanna, save us. But by Friday, they would cry, crucify, crucify. And our Savior would die, he'd be buried, but the story wouldn't end there. He would rise again from the dead and change everything. So let me encourage you this Holy Week to make seeking God and his word of priority to join us Wednesday for our VBS training together as we get an opportunity to share about this glorious message for Good Friday, Night of Worship, 6.30, and to begin to invite folks even now for next Sunday, Easter Sunday, as we remember that God, what, what man intended for evil, God. We close our service with a benediction, a blessing for the road from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good